Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. So if you were described by a group of people, uh, if you were described, you, you were described kind of by maybe a group of people who, who didn't know you super well, but, but have spent some time with you, would you recognize yourself? Uh, this week in, in Iceland, um, I, I read a story of a woman who um, kind of faced that. Uh, a group of tourists spent hours Saturday night looking for a missing woman near Iceland's Elgic Canyon, only to find her among the search party. <laughs> the group was traveling through Iceland on a tour bus and stopped near a volcanic canyon. Soon there was word of a missing passenger. The woman who had changed clothes didn't recognize the description of herself and joined the search. <laughs> But the search was called off at about 3 a.m. when it became clear that the missing woman was, in fact, accounted for and searching for herself. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that, like, changing clothes makes you an entirely different person. But um, apparently this woman was rather confused about who she was, and she was looking with a whole bunch of other people for herself. And, and it's interesting, though, because we live in, in, a, in a world and a time where... There is an incredible uh, focus and pressure on, on identity and, and, and finding who you are and becoming who you're supposed to be or who, being free to be who, whoever you are, that, that kind of thing. And in fact, it's so interesting. That just seems to be the, 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 the conversation everywhere we look. In fact, I mean, even today we have <clears throat> probably one of the big things in, in politics is identity politics where you take everybody who, who has the same exact feelings and thought as you and, and you gather together with them and you're against everybody else and you, you move forward trying to get everything to, to go with your identity and, and, and all of that. And it's just, it's interesting because um, we get our, what we think of ourselves, who we are, our identity from, from all kinds of different sources. Um, sometimes it's, it's in comparison with others. We, we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, I, I should be like that or, or I can't be like that or I am like that or, or I'm not like that. And, and we, we kind of compare ourselves with others. And that's one place that seems to inform our identity, not maybe rightly so, but it does. And uh, other times we, we get our identities or, or we decide who we are based on our accomplishments or, or what we know, the information we have, our knowledge, or, or even our occupation. Um, it's interesting how much, how much we, we tend to think of ourselves because of what we do. Um, this week, uh, Sharon and I were away at the coast, and um, where we were staying, um, they had a hot tub. So I went out to the hot tub one night, and um, there was a, I was in there for a little bit, and then a, a, a retired couple came in and hopped in the hot tub as well. And uh, they, were, they were from Saskatchewan, Canada. And so we chatted for a while, um, and just just note to everybody as you as you think about the the idea of of come sit with me. That's not something you should say to somebody in a hot tub when you're in a hot tub with strangers. It just gets super awkward. Um, 
I didn't do that. I had at least the presence of mind not to. But um, we're talking and stuff. And so that, that we were, I saw them the next night in the hot tub as well. But the first night we kind of talked about life, about, they talked about their, their family, their kids. They talked about our family and, and we chatted for a while. And the second night we were, we were the three of us were in the hot tub and, and uh, I was asked, uh, you know, what, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And I don't know if it was like the language barrier um, like I didn't say I'm a pastor, eh? Um, or, or what happened, but um, he didn't quite understand what I said. And he said, you're a pester? He goes, do you deal with pests? And his wife was like, no, he said pastor. And then I kind of looked at her and I was like, well, I mean, <laughs> it's not totally off. Um, but, 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 but uh, you know, we kind of got there. But it was kind of funny because our conversation, once they found out that I was a pastor, pester, um, that it just kind of turned into like the conversation got narrowed a little bit because, you know, we could, because of who I am and my identity, we could only talk about certain things. Um, and it was interesting because her, she mentioned that her, her brother uh, is, a, is a pastor up in Canada. And uh, she said that, that, that he's just, he's, he's really like tired and exhausted and doesn't take any time off. And they're trying to convince him to, to retire and he just won't do it. And, and it was interesting because as I thought about that, I thought even, you know, for him, his, it, it sounds, I don't know him, but, but from the description, it sounds like his identity is very much wrapped up in, in his occupation and being a pastor. And it's, it's hard to maybe take a step back from that or, 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 or that kind of thing. But, but again, we, we get our identity. We, we think of who we are because of these things. Um, sometimes we, we, we dive deep into our passions and we look at our identities from, from that standpoint or, or our biology or our heritage or, or our feelings. We're very feeling-driven. And so, uh, so many people... It, there's, there's almost a fluidity of, of identity because it's kind of whatever I feel like today or whatever I feel like in this season of my life. And this is my identity. This is who I am right now. And, and I don't know, for, for some people feel like just kind of a number, um, like 24601 oh, um, or something like that. And, and, so, and so really it, it comes down to we have all of these, these places that we're getting information about who we are and what our identity is or, or what we should be. And, and, and we think about who should have influence in who I should be in my identity. And, and oftentimes we think we should have some involvement in that, that I should have influence in, in who I am and, and who I choose to be. And, and oftentimes others, the, the expectation of others and in what people think and what people want us to be, that kind of influences. And, and society does. Whether we like it or not, society has an impact on who you see yourself as society has an impact on your identity. Uh, the reality is that I think it, it can be pretty exhausting to try and constantly figure out who you are or who you need to be. And wouldn't it be great if, if someone who knew you better than anyone else or cared for you more than anyone else gave you some direction on who you are? And again, as, as, as a person who, who believes that the Bible is, is God's word to us, and that Jesus is, is the creator and sustainer of all things. Um, I believe that Jesus is that person, and the answer to who I am is inextricably linked to who Jesus is. I think for us to truly find our identity, we have to understand who Jesus is. Because as we'll see in today's passage, as we begin our study in Colossians, we'll see that this lays a foundation for who you and I are because of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And, and so when we understand who Jesus is, we will be able to better understand who we are and who we can be. Unfortunately, there are a lot of, of, of competing voices that are creating confusion and fear uh, to, in answering this question. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to go through the first 23 verses today. And uh, I believe that this kind of sets up this foundation of our identity. And it will be building on this in the weeks to come. But we need to kind of catch this here at the beginning. And so um, I'm going to start reading in, in verse 1. And I'm going to kind of break it up into some different parts. So I want to start in verse 1 right now. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, uh, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. An interesting thing about the church in Colossae, the, this group of, of Christians at this church, um, Paul didn't, didn't plant this church. He, he, in fact, he's never been to this church before. This guy Epaphras, he's the guy who planted this church and, and was basically the shepherd of the church at Colossae. And uh, he had been talking to Paul and, and sharing with Paul about what's going on in Colossae with, with the believers. And, and so Paul hearing about who they are and, and hearing a little bit about what God's doing through them and in them and, and in the city of Colossae and, and, and what their process is and their growth and their, their acceptance and reception of the gospel, Paul decides to write them a letter. And so Paul begins and he says, he says uh, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And, and one of the things <clears throat> that I just want to point out, because, because this is kind of a reference point that we need to understand like the, the breadth and the depth of what Paul is talking about here and how he's addressing them. He says, we read in our, in our Bibles, it says, to the saints and faithful brothers. Um, as, as, as you look at this, um, verse two in the, in the Greek, it says to the saints, the Greek term is, is, is agioi. And, and the idea is, and that's probably more, more accurately translated, is to the holy ones and the faithful brothers. And, and, and as we look at this and we look at how Paul uses some of his his wording and, and references things in the New Testament, especially in his letters, um, what he's talking about here is saying to the saints or to the holy ones and the faithful brothers, he's actually not just talking to those people in the church in Colossae, but he's actually expanding what he's talking about and he's saying to all of those who have ears to hear. In other words, to not only those humans who are made in my image, but also the spiritual realm, the spiritual beings that I've created to all the holy ones and the faithful brothers in Christ who lead up to the lordship of Christ. And he says that because later in the book, he's going to be dealing with not only the identity that, that we have as human beings who are created in God's image, but he's also going to be referencing Christ's lordship over even all of the spiritual beings and powers as well. So he starts with that here in the beginning of the book, saying to the holy ones and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, meaning all 
the beings that, are, that exist. It's, it's a to, to kind of a, in, in its absolute totality. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he begins by talking about what he knows of the believers in the church at Colossae. Not that he's met them, but what he's heard about them. The things that characterize them. And he says, we always thank God. He says, he's thankful to God uh, when he prays for them, when they pray for him. Um, and he's thankful for what God is doing in them. And it's interesting because he says, we thank God for you. And typically when we thank someone, it's because they've done something for us. They've somehow benefited us in some way. And, and the reality is, is that, that what he's saying here is that he's giving thanks not for what they've done for him because he hasn't even had any interaction with them. He's not met them. They've not necessarily done anything for him. He's thanking God for what God has done in them. He's actually thanking God for the transformation that they have come alongside in Christ Jesus with. He's thankful that they're becoming more like Jesus, even though it doesn't necessarily benefit him at all. Which goes and it kind of flies in the face of the world's view around us and what we think because the world is focused on how you benefit me rather than I can celebrate you growing and becoming who Jesus has created you to be. That, that it's, it's how I benefit from you and, and, and rarely are we necessarily just thankful that someone is growing even though they're not actually impacting in a beneficial way our lives. But Paul says, we thank God for how you are growing, how you're becoming like Jesus. And, and, he, and he says, so, but specifically, the way that you're growing, he says this. He says, since we heard of your faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, and the hope laid up for you in heaven. So there's actually three things that Paul says specifically that he has heard from Epaphras about the Christians, the believers at the church in Colossae that he is thankful for that characterizes them. And the first one, he says, your faith in Christ. That those, those believers at the church, they are doing, they're following Jesus and they're growing in their faith in Christ. They're, they're becoming more like Jesus. That they're living their faith in Jesus so that the people around them can see them. That it's evident that they serve Jesus. It's evident that they're following Jesus. It's evident that they're becoming like Jesus. And so that's the first thing. But then he goes on and he says, and for your love for all the saints, which is really cool because, because it is a love, as he describes it, that is sacrificial and indiscriminate. That, that he says, your love is, is for all the saints. Um, here, here's the thing. And I was talking with somebody a, a while ago and they were talking about just the, the, the really crazy state of politics and, and, and how people take different political positions and stuff. And, and how, how politics has actually wormed its way into the church and has become an important thing where it shouldn't be an important thing. And, and I don't mean that we shouldn't be, be active and involved in, in how our government functions but I am talking about how believers relate and interact with each other based on politics. That you can have two people who, who follow Jesus, who are in the family of God, and one has this political belief and one has this political belief, and somehow there is tension between those people, even though they've both been redeemed by Jesus and forgiven of their sins. 
completely undeserved and unearned by them. And it's almost like there's a discriminant love within the body of Christ, that, that we tend to love better those who are like us, who have similar histories as us, who look more like us, who, who have similar beliefs as us, as us on things outside of the gospel message. And, and, and what Paul says about these believers in Colossae, that they have this indiscriminate love that they love all the saints. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're part of God's family, they would say, we love you. And we're not gonna let things that, we're not gonna let things get in the way of that that are not important to eternity and becoming like Jesus. See, love is the moral basis for unity in the church and it does two things. One, love represents Jesus to the world says this all the time throughout the scriptures, that people will know that you belong to Jesus because of how you love. And secondly, it perfects the body of Christ. We see this again throughout the New Testament, that, that we will be perfected in love. And so it represents Jesus to the world and it perfects the body of Christ. And so he says that I've heard about your faith in Jesus, your love for others, and then he says the hope laid up for you in heaven. In other words, that, that their hope is anchored in heaven. Their hope is anchored in the truth of what Jesus revealed to them and what scripture has revealed to them and they have hope. And, and, so, and so really, faith toward God and love toward others grows out of hope. Without hope, there's no reason for faith and love and everything ends up just being directed to ourselves and our world and we're just all about that. And it's interesting that, that the thing that Paul points out that he sees, that he's heard about these believers in the church at Colossae is that they are characterized by faith and love and hope, which those three things are a theme in Scripture. See, Paul write elsewhere that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And we see the, 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 the importance of faith and hope and love that is always, always present in Jesus' teaching and the teaching of Scripture. And that's what characterized these individuals. That's part of who they were, who they were becoming in the city of Colossae. And, and so then Paul goes on and he says, as he, as he just highlights those things, he says, uh, of this you have heard before in the word, word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, they say that your, your faith and your love and your hope came from the gospel that you received. And then he goes on and he, and he says in verse six, he says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Which is kind of a cool statement if you think about it. Paul says that you, you are growing out of this gospel that you've received which is bearing fruit all over the world. He's telling them that the gospel is it, what you're experiencing in your life and in your community of growing is, is happening all over the world. And I think that's so cool because it kind of connects us with them today because he, the way Paul describes it is the gospel, which is bearing fruit all over the world, which we've even gotten to hear in the last, few, in the last couple months when the hex were up here last week. 
talking and sharing about what's going on in Spain and, and the discipleship that they're doing and, and, and parents coming to Christ of, of children who, who've come to Christ and then them bringing their spouse and other friends and, and we see that happening in Spain and, and maybe a month ago when, when the Eckarts were here talking about what God is doing in, in countries that are closed off to the gospel. In these countries that, that where, where, where people are becoming Christians, in these, in the, in these Muslim countries that, that, that really don't have any avenue, but, but God is doing work and the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world as it is here in our lives, in your life. As, as, as God is working to transform you, that the gospel is having an impact. And, and it just is, it, that statement is so cool because it ta- it's talking about not just those in Colossae, but it's talking about us that the gospel today still is bearing fruit around the world and right here in our own community. And he goes on, and, and, and so, so he, he explains this, and, and he says that, 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 that the gospel to them was brought through Epaphras, a relationship that they had, and, and he began to, to build relationships with people, and, and people started to see the, 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 the power of the gospel, and, and then a church was born out of that, and that those people are, are benefiting that was the catalyst for the growth, so the gospel and someone bringing it relationally. And so then he's, he's kind of described who they are, who he's heard about them, what he knows about them. And now he begins in verse nine to, to say what he wants for them. So in verse nine, if you follow along with me, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says, from the day that we heard about you, from when Epaphras came and and talked to us about you, kind of bragged about what God was doing in Colossae, he said, from that day, we have not ceased to pray for you. And, and what he says here, when he says we've not ceased to pray for you, it's, it's this general term for prayer. It's the entirety of, the, of, of prayer life. It, it's not that they were doing prayer and only praying for them and doing nothing else, not eating, sleeping, not doing any activities, not going anywhere. They were, it's not that, it's, it's that prayer was woven throughout thoughts and activities as they did what God called them to do. And that, that those people, the church, they were, they were thematically in, in Paul's mind and in those who were with Paul, they were praying for them in general ways. But not only was he praying for them in general ways, but he was asking specific things for them. And that's part of the beauty of prayer is that, we can pray for people that we don't know that we've never met. We can pray people that we don't know much about, but we know that they're going through something. We can pray in general ways for anyone, and God responds to that. But when God places us in community, we get this greater, deeper level of not just praying in general for people, but, but, but asking specific, for specific particular requests that God would intervene in people's lives. And that's what Paul is doing here because he knows enough about them 
But he says, I pray for you all the time and I ask specifically for something. And that thing that he asks for, he says this right here in, in verse nine. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you asking specifically that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. His specific prayer is he wants them to know God's will. They want them to have a knowledge of God that results in understanding God's will. And he says, how? And, and the reality is that they already are growing in faith and love and hope. And he says, what I want to happen is for you to drill down deep and, and grow in your understanding, your knowledge of God's will. And, 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 and he says, and he says, I want you to, and where you get that from is through spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, and this isn't some kind of secret thing that you need a decoder ring to figure out. It's, it's, that, it's that this spiritual wisdom and understanding, it comes through revelation that is available to anyone who's willing to receive. It comes through God's word. That's where it comes from. That's what Paul is talking about. I want you to know God's will through spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom, which comes from God's word and is given in God's word, which is different than the understanding and wisdom that you'll get from the world around you. You see, when we know God's will, the result is obedience, which will be evident in our actions and behavior. When we know God's will, we will actually follow it out. See, you can't, you can't really understand God's will and not follow it, and not obey. And, and so Paul goes on, and, and as he says, I want, you to understand the, I want you to understand God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's just another way of saying, I want you to be obedient to God's will. Walking in a manner worthy is synonymous with obedience. He's simply saying, I want you to obey God. I want you to obey God, and here's how you obey God. And he basically says three things. He says, uh, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, he wants them to grow in, in the way that they bear fruit, that they would grow fruit, that they would grow fruit that is, a, that is in line and consistent with the character and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the fruit of the Spirit, that they would grow in love, which they're already growing in, that they would grow in patience and kindness and self-control and all of those things, that those things would be evident to the people around them. And, and he says that, that you would grow in your knowledge of God. And here's the thing about our knowledge and understanding of God. Obedience brings a greater and deeper understanding of God. You will not understand God or know God better if you're living a life of disobedience. See, not long ago I had a conversation with somebody who's chosen to live in disobedience and they made the comment to me, they said, well, you know, I'm still reading God's word. I'm still going to church. But here's the thing, you won't know God better or deeper when you are living in obedience, even if you're reading scripture, even if you're listening to sermons, even if you're in a Bible study, even if you're reading books, even if you're listening to Christian podcasts, because you see, we won't grow in our knowledge of God if we are walking in obedience, of disobedience. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to know God better through disobedience. And so, and so he says, he says to, to grow in your bearing of fruit, that you would look more like Jesus. 
Then he says that, that you would also, how do you walk in a manner that's worthy? Is that you will be strengthened in power to persevere, to endure, to, be, to grow in patience, and to experience joy. So basically he says that you would grow in the power to persevere the circumstances of life, to be patient with the process of transformation, and to experience the joy that's available to you through the, your relationship with Christ. He says, that's, that's my prayer for you. That's the specific prayer, that I want you to walk worthy, and part of walking worthy is that you will grow in strength. You will be strengthened in being able to endure the things that life sets in front of you, that you'll be able to be patient with the process that God has you in, and that you will have joy in spite of those circumstances. And then he says the thing that, that has hit me probably hardest in, in this passage thus far. He says in verse 12, <clears throat> he says, giving thanks or gratitude, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, delivered us, and transferred us. It's interesting, he says, giving thanks, which is a past thing. Uh, here's the reality, that when we thank someone, we thank them after the fact. We don't thank them before because that almost sounds manipulative or expectant, doesn't it? Like if I was to come up to you today, like after church, and I said, hey, thank you for giving me $100. Like that doesn't sound, it sounds a little weird that you haven't given me $100. If you're planning on it, great. And I will thank you after you give it to me. But if I thank you before you give me $100, that seems like I'm trying to uh, get money from you. Uh, and so you don't, you thank people after they've done something. And, and so Paul says, thanking God for something he's already done. And here's what it says, and I love this, and I think this is something that if, if you want to like commit to memory uh, some scripture, I would suggest verses 12 to 14 in Colossians chapter one, because this is part of who you are if you have surrendered your life to Christ. It's not who you're becoming, it's who you already are. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And there's that, that's, that's that word holy ones again. It's that agios. It's, it's that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light. In other words, that God, it's not that I got qualified because I studied and took a test and qualified for it. It's that I qualified not because of me, but because of Jesus and his sacrificial death and resurrection and the shedding of his blood and for his salvation and his forgiveness of sins. He qualified me for this. And so giving thanks to the Father for having qualified you to share in the inheritance. Everything that God has, he has qualified us to share in with that. Like, that's kind of an incredible thing. That that's an already done thing. That's not something we're working toward or we're working to be qualified for that. But we're already qualified. And then he says, and has delivered us from the domain of darkness. See, and I, I, I like how, how it's, it's, it's there that delivered us or rescued us. It's not that we were lost because it's, 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 it's easy to think about like when we get lost and, and what probably many of us do, we just figure out our way out. We don't actually stop and get help. Uh, we, we figure out, you know, it might take three hours, but I'll find my way back. But that's not how it was in this domain of darkness. We weren't gonna find our way back. It's impossible because we were dead in sin. So God, 
delivered us. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And that's already happened. We're no longer there. And then finally it says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He transferred us. Like we didn't put in for a transfer because we couldn't. It's impossible. But he transferred us to the kingdom of his son because Jesus redeemed and forgave us of our sins. When you think of who you are, do you often think of yourself as qualified, delivered, and transferred? Because if you follow Jesus, that's what you are. That's part of your identity, is that you are already qualified in Christ. You already delivered through Christ, and you are already transferred because of Christ. That's, that's a huge thing. So Paul talks through this idea of who he knows them to be. He talks through what he's praying for them. And then he goes and he, and he tells them who Jesus is. Because you see, to understand who we are, we need to understand who Jesus is. And, and in these last verses, he talks about Jesus on two levels. One, that Jesus is Lord of creation, and two, that Jesus is Lord of redemption or recreation. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are all talking about spiritual beings and spiritual powers. Thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Those are part of the holy ones that he's been talking about. That even over all those holy ones, created beings, created spiritual beings, Jesus is over those. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And, and so as... as as Paul talks about who Jesus is, he begins with this idea that, that Jesus is Lord of creation. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. And that takes us back to what we talked about in our pattern series as we were talking about Genesis 1 and 2 and how we are image bearers. And we are called to, to that dominion mandate and, and that God ha has very specific things for us, that we reflect his image that the reason idolatry is bad is because God already made idols of himself, reflections of him. But Jesus is not just an image bearer. Jesus is the manifestation, the actual presence of God. He is God himself. He's not just a reflection or an image, but he is the image of the exact image of the invisible God. In Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In John 1.18, the, the, the apostle writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In other words, that Jesus makes God known. That if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. That they are one. And so he says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the invisible God becomes visible in Jesus, not just reflected like we reflect God, like we reflect Jesus, but Jesus is 
makes actually God visible to us. Then he goes on, he says, the image of the invisible God. Then he says, he's the firstborn of all creation. And when he says firstborn of all creation, he's not talking about firstborn in the sense of birth order or that he is part of the created order. The next verse makes that really clear. Some, some theologies go off track where they say, oh no, Jesus was created. He's the first, first thing God created. No, that's not what Paul's saying here at all. He's actually talking about firstborn in the sense of status or authority or preeminence or superiority. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the supremacy of Jesus over all creation. And he goes in to expand on that by talking about what he means by the firstborn of creation in the next things he says. He says, all things, he says, for by him all things were created. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible. But the thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so he goes on and, and he says that, that it is by him, through him, and for him. That by him means Jesus conceived of creation and its complexities along with God the Father. Through him, the power of Jesus and his ability was the effective agent of creation. That through him, all that we see and don't see is created. And it's for him that Jesus is the goal of all creation and everything exists to reflect Jesus. And, and, and so, you see, he says very clearly that Jesus is before all things, which is a matter of time. Jesus precedes time itself. And it says he, in all things, he holds all things together, which means he's the sustainer of all things. You see, what, what Paul's saying about Jesus and the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, is this, that Jesus creative power and Jesus' authority and Jesus being over includes everything visible and invisible, physical and spiritual. He created and is over all things, including the upside down, the multiverse, the outer rim, the twilight zone, the phantom zone, the emerald city, Neverland, Wonderland, Hogwarts, Asgard, and Narnia, but you all knew he was already Lord over Narnia. Because <laughs> that's obvious. But it doesn't matter what we're talking about that's created. If it was in fact created, Jesus is Lord over it. Paul leaves nothing, at, in a, nothing is questioned about that. He is Lord over all those things. And then in verse 18, he switches from Jesus is Lord over creation to Lord is, he is Lord over recreation or redemption. Look at verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he's Lord over redemption, how? Well, he's the head of the church, the body of Christ. That the people of Jesus are totally dependent on Jesus for life and for power. It says that he's the firstborn of the dead. In other words, what it's saying is he is, Jesus is the reason for the new humanity, for the resurrection from being dead in sin, that Jesus' resurrection gives worth to all resurrection, that we will have life eternally with God because of Jesus' resurrection, because he is the firstborn of the dead. 
that he died and rose from the dead first and gave that meaning. That the resurrection by which all resurrections have their worth. And so Paul goes on to say, not only is he Lord over creation, but he's Lord over recreation, redemption. See, this is what Paul has, has basically said in this opening part of his letter to the church in, in Colossae. First, he says that, that you who are in Colossae, you have a living faith, an indiscriminate love for all believers, and a solid hope of eternal life through the gospel. That you are characterized by faith and love and hope. Then he goes on to say, what I pray for you is that you would grow in your personal knowledge of God's will and that would be accompanied by you bearing fruit, growing in fruit and, and, and being strengthened in your perseverance, your, will, your ability to hang on impatiently and with joy and gratitude that God has already qualified you, delivered you, and transferred you to the kingdom of his son. And then finally, he says, just as creation depends on Jesus for his existence and order, redemption depends on him, and he's the primary figure in it. All of that is the basis, the foundation of who we are. My identity. As much as the world and my feelings and my desires and my experiences and my family and, and my passions and my occupation and my knowledge and, and, and all of that stuff, as much as that pushes me to identify myself a certain way, this is the identity that the creator of everything says I am. The last few verses of today's text are this. He goes back to where they were and where they are now. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, look, this is what you were. This is your predicament before you were alienated, enemies, and desperate. But now that you've heard the gospel and you've received it, you're reconciled and all your debts are paid through Jesus. You see, the, the, key, to, to, the key is to hold on, to stay steadfast to what Jesus says about me, even when that's difficult, even when that's hard. Even when everything is telling me different, that I need to hold on to what Jesus says and how he identifies me. It's like that woman on the tour who couldn't notice a, a, a description of herself. We wander and we are lost in the crowd so often. Going from thing to thing, we've got to hold on to what Jesus says about us. So as you... As you visit and gather in, in your gospel communities this week, maybe your family or your small groups, I would challenge you to ask some questions. And I don't have these up on the screen, but they'll be available uh, tomorrow online and, and on our website. Um, and that's this. First question I would challenge you to ask is this. Where are you looking to discover who you are? Where are you looking to discover who you are? 
What are you letting inform you of who you are? Second question is this. In order to find our true identity, we have to know the will of God, which leads to obedience. And so really the question is this. How is your walk? How's your walk? Is your walk, does it look like you're growing fruit? Are you being strengthened in your walk to persevere? To be patient? Are, are, you, are you grateful? Have you thought about the fact that Jesus has already qualified, delivered, and transferred you? Finally, the last question is this. We have, it is a reality that we've been qualified, delivered, and transferred by Jesus. How much do you see yourself defined by that? How much do you see yourself defined by God qualifying, delivering, and transferring you to the kingdom of his son? Because that's where we start with who we are. That I am not a pastor. I am a person I'm a guy who's been qualified by God, delivered from the domain of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's where my identity starts. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come up. If you need prayer this morning, if, if you want somebody to pray for you, if you wanna talk to somebody, I would encourage you to come up after I close in prayer. If you're here this morning and you're saying, hey, you know what? That whole idea of being qualified delivered and transferred. I don't think that applies to me because I've, I don't know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Then I would encourage you this morning to come forward after I pray and talk with one of these people because what starts that qualified, delivered, and transferred is for you to cry out and ask for forgiveness from Jesus for your sins, recognizing that you can't fix yourself. It's only Jesus. I would encourage you, if you're in that place this morning, to come forward and talk to one of these people. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning, and I thank you so much that you don't leave us wondering who we are. God, that we don't have to go around and ask or figure it out, but God, you have defined us already, and you have the right to define us because you created us. And you have a purpose and a plan for us. And most of all, God, you love us and know us more than we could ever even know ourselves. So Father, this morning I pray that we would walk out of here as a people who recognize who we are, that we are qualified, delivered, and transferred. That Jesus, you are the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, and it is from there that I get my identity, regardless of what I'm told or feel. God, I thank you for your love for us, and I thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.